As software permeates our lives, there are an increased number of situations where the legal system must be designed to account for that software. Whether the issues are open source licensing, cryptocurrencies, or worker classifications, software overlaps heavily with the law. Just as software is crafted by engineers, the legal structure around software is crafted by lawyers. There are large law firms that have built their business by knowing how to navigate these software and business questions. Mark Radcliffe is a lawyer who has been working with software companies for decades. He joins the show to talk about the interaction of software and the law, which we discuss from multiple points of view. We are looking for a writer who can help with preparation and research. And if you are interested, you can send me an email, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. Also, I am investing in software companies. If you're building a software company and you think it's interesting, then send me an email, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. Mark Radcliffe, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. You are a lawyer. You have significant experience in open source, cryptocurrencies, cloud computing, a lot of different things. And I'd like to explore a lot of those different aspects. But one I'd like to start with this back in time, so which is during the 90s. You've been in the software industry for a while, and I'd like to get your reflections on the Microsoft legal proceedings of the 90s, because I think this was one of the earliest cases of the law colliding with the software world. What are your reflections on the Microsoft legal proceedings of the 90s? Well, sadly, that is something we represent Microsoft now, so that's not something I can really address. But what I can do is give you a little bit of insight into how software made its way into the legal business and actually caused a change in the structure of the legal business, which might be of interest to your listeners. Sure, go ahead. Yeah, so I actually started practicing in 1982. And at that time, there was a clear division between law firms that were what are called corporate law firms. And then there were what are called PTC law firms or patent, trademark, and copyright law firms. And the corporate law firms kept to their lane, which was corporate law and all things related to corporations, litigation, et cetera. And the PTC firms did all the patent, trademark, and copyright work. So they did advising, they did licensing, they did litigation. And the corporate firms, like the firm I was at called Brobeck, Flager, and Harrison, which sadly is now no longer around, didn't do any of that. But software licensing changed all that because in the world at that time, if you had a problem involving intellectual property, you sent it over to Townsend & Townsend or Limbach, Limbach & Sutton, very well-known names of law firms in San Francisco. But when we sent them software licensing, they weren't interested. As a matter of fact, PTC firms were really patent firms who would do trademarks and copyrights as an accommodation, but really wanted to do patent work. When we couldn't send this work to them, and this is the early 80s, and you know, people didn't know how to license software. Was it protected by copyright? There were people who said it was only protected by patent. Was it, was it subject to something called Article 2 of the Uniform Commercial Code? All these things were new issues, and they simply weren't interested in doing it. And so um, that ended up being with the the general practice law firms, the corporate law firms. In order to do that, they need to learn 
about patents. They need to learn about copyrights. They need to learn about trademarks. And they discovered, wow, this stuff, well, we can learn this stuff. And so that began what eventually became a tidal wave of integration of these this intellectual property law firms with uh, general practice firms like uh, DLA Piper or, or Brobeck, Flager, and Harrison. And essentially, the entire structure of the legal industry has changed. There are very few PTC firms left. They had, some of these firms were over 140 years old. They worked for Thomas Edison. But Penn and Edson, for example, major New York firm, no longer around. Lumbach and Sutton, we ended up uh, taking most of those people in, no longer around. Townsend and Townsend merged with a general practice firm. So software was sort of the, the, the first step in that journey to completely reorganize the legal industry where now major intellectual property matters are handled in large law firms and the specialist firms, there are some specialist firms left, some of them um, do only patent, some do patent and trademark, but we, my firm now has the largest trademark practice in the world with over 60,000 marks under management. So that is a big shift and it all came about because of soft, software licensing in the early 80s. Do you have any other examples of how the generational changes in the software industry have affected the structure of law firms? Well, yes, because law firms now, like virtually all professional service firms, and frankly, all companies are essentially software firms. So, you know, Mark Andreessen said software is eating the world. That's absolutely correct in his will discuss in more detail, open source software is eating software. So open source software is therefore eating the world. But the as a practical matter, software has affected industries across the board. And, and really software and your infrastructure is now in a critical competitive advantage um, for virtually everybody, everybody from insurance companies and banks to, you know, manufacturing companies. So it's not just the, you know, the technology firms that are concerned about software. It's essentially everybody. And they need to be. And frankly, technology, starting with software, is frequently a core competitive advantage for many companies, even in industries outside of technology. And it's also, frankly, enabled, you know, competitors come up without the legacy software infrastructure and be very effective. So you have the new banks, all online banks, or you have insurance companies, you know, like Lemonade that just went public. Um, so software has had a fundamental effect on the structure, I would say, of business as a whole. And I think blockchain is on the cusp, I say cusp, I'm, I should say near to medium term, of having a similar effect because uh, it is applicable to all types of companies. Um, it's going to change the way in which people do business. I mean, just take a look at the, you know, the rise of e-commerce, right, and the shrinkage of traditional retail. I mean, that was all really driven by software. And so I think that the pandemic we're having right now is accelerating that as more and more people work from home. 
And, you know, so the question is, are people going to go back to their offices? But it's software, just like Zoom, like we're using, which has enabled people to do this. I mean, if you take a look, uh, you know, in the past, you couldn't have made this shift. I mean, my law firm went from 250 people working remote to 3,600 in a 36-hour period. Software has had a fundamental effect on reordering business and driving new competition, I would say. Can you say more about how cryptocurrency technology specifically has had an impact on law firms? Let me be careful and say blockchain, not cryptocurrency, because I cryptocurrency is a subset of blockchain, and it's still a subset that has, frankly, limited use cases. But blockchain itself as a technology, and people should remind themselves, this is not quite as new as people believe. All the technologies that make up blockchain have been around for a while. The combination is what makes it truly uh, powerful. But let me give you some examples of how blockchain is going to affect business. Then we'll talk about how law firms get involved in that. So I have a client called Velocity Networks. They've launched. They intend to use blockchain to completely reconfigure the way people maintain records of their work history, as well as how people hire people. Because right now, that system is very broken, where um, everybody that interviews somebody has to go and call all the references, call you know the university they went to and things like that, because there's no single source of truth. That's where blockchain can be very powerful. And their concept, you can take a look at them on the web, is to essentially bring together the, the universities who provide the credentials, other people who provide credentials, the companies that are hiring people, the companies that enable hiring, you know, and the companies that do the background checks and put them all on a single blockchain so you're not constantly reinventing the wheel. Um, and that's something that could not be done with current technology. Um, I have another client who is putting together a blockchain for trading certain types of commodities in the oil business. And you've got a bunch of these competitors all sitting around the table because it's going to make the the transactions much more efficient. And, you know, but cryptocurrency itself, Bitcoin, now Bitcoin is very interesting as a store of value, but I don't think it's going to replace regular currencies. Um, we're just really at the beginning of where, you know, Cryptocurrencies will have an effect. Um, you know, people have been talking about stable coins. They're being used right now, though, primarily in the crypto environment. But if, but I do think, you know, the PRC has announced that they're going to have a, uh, a digital yuan. I think we're going to see a move by central banks to uh, digital currencies. You know, whether, I'm not sure if you'd call that a cryptocurrency, but it's digital. Um, you know, I was involved by one of the investors for Libra, took a look at that. Um, they ended up dropping out. Um, Libra was a very interesting project, not entirely well thought through, particularly the reaction of the regulators was rather harsh. And I think they were surprised by that. But the net of it is, yeah, it, it offers an entirely new way of doing business, you know, so, for example, there's a type of insurance call, uh, that is based on, not on damages, but 
is based on the occurrence of certain factors. So let's say you have a hurricane insurance that says you get paid a certain amount of money if the if you there are 100 mile hour winds around your building. Well, you know, you can use um, smart contracts to completely automate that. You have to have an oracle to tell you what the winds are that you trust. Uh, <clears throat> but you can automate the payment of that. And you can also automate, I know the insurance industry is looking at automating payments on uh, basically car accidents. So if you think about it, you know, I don't have the exact numbers, but let's say there are 20 major insurance companies that have uh, car insurance. They are constantly either receiving money or paying money to, you know, their, the other people in that group of 20. If you could use blockchain to consolidate all those payments, maybe you make one balancing payment between each of the members of that group at one time, that would be my, very powerful and uh, dramatically increase efficiencies. There is an insurance, one of the big insurance companies, Access said that they, you know, internal payments within their company, one of them, uh, you know, basically generated 2,000 emails followed up. So if you had blockchain internally, that could be, you know, a major way of saving money. Even, once again, even if all you're doing is just using it internally to access to track payments between different subsidiaries. So, so I think, uh, you know, so I think that blockchain has the potential to be across all industries. Talk about, uh, for example, I got involved with an effort to set up a marketplace for used airline parts. Sometimes you learn things you don't really want to know, but, uh, and this is the case, there's apparently a very lucrative and very troubling uh, trade in counterfeit airline parts. So most airline parts come with elaborate documentation about their provenance, where they were used, how long they're used, how long they're serviced, everything else. But there's also sort of a gray market out there, particularly in some of the poor countries where things aren't as well documented. Well, blockchain could provide a solution to that problem and give people a lot more confidence that, you know, the part you're getting is actually a real part. And, you know, and it also uh, enables, uh, enables it to open up other business models. One of the other problems for airline parts is with 3D printing, you know, parts don't necessarily come from a, uh, a factory. It could be free to, 3D printed on site. And so how do you control that? How do you make sure you know that that uh, 3D printed part is actually a real, you know, a, a real part, not a counterfeit? So, so there's a lot of um, situations in which blockchain can be used in the context of the supply chain to make it much more efficient, as well as to, you know, reduce the amount of fraud. That's also true in the food supply chain. You know, for example, there was a uh, some contaminated lettuce uh, about a year and a half ago, and it came from a particular farm in a particular county in Arizona, but that county has lots of farms and lots of lettuce packaging facilities. So eventually everything that came from that county for like a two week period was taken off shelves and thrown out. So there's like, you know, I think $4 million worth of lettuce was thrown out. Yet, you know, if the lettuce had been tracked and as people may know, Walmart is demanding that leafy vegetables be tracked on a, on a blockchain they put together with IBM, 
you know, then you, you know, you can dramatically reduce that sort of wastage. So I, so I think blockchain has an enormous amount of use cases. Um, we got a little bit diverted in 2017 into initial coin offerings, but I'm seeing a lot more major enterprises getting interested in blockchain and application of their business. What was the fallout from the 27, 2018 bubble? How did that crypto bubble affect where we are today? Well, it means that a lot of securities lawyers are making a lot of money defending it. I mean, the, uh, you know, in the case of the kin slash kick, the, the company has said they've spent $5 million defending the offering. There's a lot of people who've chosen not to do that um, and have just folded up their tent and given the money back to the investors. So it, basically, this was a delusion um, of people. I mean, we actually, my law firm formed what we called an ICO committee because we were getting bombarded from all directions by people who wanted to do a, you know, basically do an ICO the next day or within a week. And, you know, many of these people didn't understand that they are likely to be securities, didn't hear that they wanted to be securities. So we were very selective in the matters we took on. And so we've gotten involved in trying to fix problems, but happily, I don't think any of our clients got hit with that. So I, so the fallout has been, first of all, I think a real big black eye for tokens and blockchain technology. I mean, throughout most of 2018, certainly 2019, you couldn't really say the word blockchain to a large enterprise because they assumed that you were a scammer trying to, you know, sell a bunch of tokens and go Lambo. Um, so uh, that was, that's one result. Um, the possibility of actually using tokens as a funding device, I think, has been dramatically de decreased because nobody wants to touch the ICO. And the, and the SEC went from being open to the idea to viewing all token. I think the chairman of the SEC said, every token off, every ICO I've seen is a security. Okay. So... I think it, well, it, it created a lot of headaches for people who want to integrate the technology into the financial system because it, um, it sort of darkened the reputation of the technology. I think we're pretty much coming out of that, but you know, I think the hangover from that is going to continue. People are probably aware of the Telegram situation where they, you know, they recently were told they couldn't sell their tokens and unfortunately told, and the decision came out in a way which makes a structure that people have tried to use to avoid security law problem, something called a SAFT structure, where you sell something called a simple agreement for future tokens to accredited investors. And then with the idea that you'll only sell the tokens when the system is up and running and decentralized. And basically the Telegram decision poured cold water over all that. And to be perfectly frank, Telegram itself made a number of errors and were, was way too aggressive. But I think tokens as a financial um, incentive has been set back pretty dramatically uh, because of everything that happened. So. Let's shift the subject to something else, which is cloud providers. And you and I have had one previous conversation. You had a, a lot to say about the legal risks and the legal ramifications of being a cloud provider. I think one area is the platform versus publisher 
realm, you know, the question of whether a a cloud provider, which is the underlying medium of many of the online platforms and publishers these days, can be classified as a, a publisher or a platform. What are the legal risks of being a cloud provider today? Well, right now, the law is in a state of a considerable amount of turmoil, okay? So if you're a cloud provider, particularly at the beginning of the cloud era, people were tagging you with potential liability for copyright infringement. So if you hosted a video of a Hollywood movie, you were liable for that. If you hosted a um, a picture of somebody, you could be liable for that too. Um, that was pretty much resolved through something called the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, which essentially gave a pure cloud service provider a lot of defenses against copyright infringement. Okay, And so the major issue is if somebody sends you a notice saying, I'm the copyright owner of this movie, take it down. And if you take it down, then you're not liable. Okay, so that that was a major shift in clarification of what people's liability is. Then there was also liability for what people state on your platform. You know, so if somebody puts up an article that has a bunch of lies, is the platform liable for that? As a publisher, you know, if you, it was if this was in the New York Times, yeah, you'd be you'd be liable for it, although strong First Amendment protections there. Um, but the question is, what about the cloud service? And that, and something called the Cloud Decency Act was put in place to, I'm not cloud, I'm, um, the, the Computer Decency Act, sorry, that essentially dramatically reduced the risk of people who publish things like Twitter being liable for the actual contents as long as they um, take appropriate steps. Uh, you know, that is now up in the air because, um, you know, there's a fight between the current administration and Twitter over Twitter marking some tweets as being um, potentially modified or, you know, so, and there's also claims that, you know, Twitter is unfairly, you know, taking people off the platform. And so there are people re-examining that safe harbor, shall we say, but, you know, much of the internet was built around that. And, and so if, if you change, it's going to radically alter what, what gets put up on the internet. And then different country, countries have different approaches to that. So, you know, there are countries in Europe, for example, that um, say that if you have a link to a newspaper, maybe you do a short article and you link to a newspaper, or maybe you just have a link with a headline with it, that's copyright infringement. And, you know, the cloud service provider is liable for that. That's that's also something that's very much a work in progress and people are trying to come up with some rules about how you can do that because the new newspapers believe, I think correctly, that they that um, you know much of the many of the cloud service providers have severely damaged their business. So so those rules are are right now in flux. So it's a little difficult to predict where they're gonna go. What was your reaction to the case of Cloudflare when Cloudflare took down the Daily Stormer, which is that uh, pseudo-Nazism site? 
Well, I think uh, I, you have a right to do business with the people you want to do business with. They're, they're, you know, Cloudflare is not a public utility. And I think the Daily Stormer was a pretty troubling site. So I think you've got to have the freedom to, you know, do unless you're a public utility, you know, um, and, or unless there are, you know, rules regarding, you know, discrimination, for example, you can do business who you want with. And you know, I think uh, the Internet is better off without the Daily Stormer, but that's my personal opinion. You have significant experience in the domain of open source. What role does a lawyer have in the creation of an open source policy? Or, or more generally, what has been your experience engaging with open source technology, open source companies? So I've been in open source for a long time. I actually helped Sugar CRM develop the dual licensing, what is now called the open core model. Um, I've been outside general counsel of the open source initiative, which determines which licenses are can be called open source. Um, and I also work with um, a number of other foundations like the Apache Software Foundation, the Linux Foundation, the open, uh, OpenStack Foundation. Um, so I've been quite involved, um, and I helped Sun write the uh, CDDL, so uh, which is a license alternative to the GPLv2. So lawyers have a very important role in open source to essentially help people understand the license and understand what the responsibilities are. And, you know, in many cases, that rolls up to doing an open source policy because, you know, a company, if it's going to be effective, really needs to have rules on how they're going to comply with the licenses because the licenses are sometimes opaque. Most of the licenses have not been through a court proceeding. So some of the ambiguities in it are, are remain ambiguities. The scope of what is a derivative work for example, and the GPLv2 remains a open issue. So there are a lot of open issues in um, open source that can enable you, you know, that require a lawyer to sort of tell you where you are on the risk scale. I don't think any, there are very few situations in open source where a lawyer can say, yes, absolutely, that's, that's the way it is, right? But because the licenses deal with issues which are not entirely settled, in uh, in copyright law, so they, and some of the licenses are somewhat difficult to understand or ambiguous. The GPLv2, for example, uses a number of different terms for derive, you know, for the idea of works that are based on it. So sometimes they use derived, which is a copyright term. Sometimes they use based, based on. Sometimes they even use the term of art derivative work out of the um, you know out of the US copyright law but derivative work doesn't have that meaning overseas so it can be quite confusing if you're trying to understand what your obligations are is legal action ever taken to enforce open source policies like if somebody is using open source software in a way that is not compliant with that policy to date that has not happened there've been actually very few cases involving open source software and interpreting the licenses. So nobody has really gotten to the policy level yet. And policies are generally internal. So I'm not sure they'd be legally enforceable by third parties. But for policies, frankly, 
policies need to have input from the programmers and the people on the ground. A policy written by a lawyer is going to be very problematic because you're going to be very cautious because many of the issues are uncertain. And it's frankly, my experience is that lawyer written policies are just not complied with or just stick them in a drawer and don't use them. So if you want to have a policy that's useful, then you've got to in, um, work with the people in in the front line, you know, the the programmers themselves, not even frankly the managers, but the programmers themselves to understand what's realistic and so you can get adoption. You know, there is, and one of the reasons people recommend that is if there was ever a case about compliance with an open source license and if you had a policy and you'd violated your policy in the way in which you'd complied with the open source license then you've got you're in a much weaker position in court so that's why the policy should well first of all policy should always reflect the real world but that's the particular reason why the policy should be reviewed by people who are developers so they can give you practical advice about what's going to work and what's not going to work. What aspects of open source and open source policy have you changed your mind about over the recent years? So first of all, you know, I'm a strong believer that an open source policy alone is not enough. You have to integrate it into a system, which probably includes um, some level of scanning along the way. It's You've got to treat, treat it as an ERP process, not a point in time. So processes which uh, basically say, okay, there's an open source check, uh, checkpoint, you know, three days before release are doomed to failure, okay? Because at that point, you may have choices you've made, which, you which would have been different if you could have made, you know, if you'd known the problems at, you know, at the tail end. And so uh, anybody who has set it up so you create the software, send it to legal, and three days later, later or two or two weeks later, you can release it. Is really playing with fire. So you've got to have a continual system of re review. And that part of that starts with we don't use GPLv3, for example. Some people take that, you know, particularly in consumer electronics products, where you need to make a uh, where you need to make crypto, uh, certain crypto keys available, you know, as installation information. I, most of the consumer electronics manufacturers I know simply say, well, we're just not going to use GPLv3 software. So, so you need to have sort of the rules of the road because there are a number of products like Bash uh, that are now GPLv3 licensed, um, which are very attractive, but, if, but they create enormous compliance headaches for people. And then there may be other rules you have. For example, we don't want to use um, a FARO general public license because it's a very difficult license to comply with because it requires you to make available over a, a network of computers, but you must also have modified the software. So if you're, if you're not tracking both of those issues, then it's, then it's very difficult to have compliance with that. That's, you know, probably the most important change from my point of view. Plus, um, I'm encouraging people to take a look at the business purpose of choosing an open source license. Um, for a long time, people chose the GPLv2, which is 
was the first open source license, and you got to give the people who developed it a lot of credit. But it doesn't always fit modern business circumstances. And so the question is, you know, should you be looking at a copyleft license or should you be looking at a permissive license? Um, if it's a permissive license, do you care about patents? In which case, the Apache license would be a natural choice. Being aware of the business purpose and is very important because you can create situations in which uh, a license choice actually means that your product gets sidelined and nobody uses it. And you know, if you're a strong enough believer in certain, uh, in you know, for example, a GPLv2, that may be fine with you. But other people may want to get the the product used as much as possible. In which case, a permissive license is probably more appropriate. We talked, uh, or I guess we. Uh, sidelined the discussion of Microsoft a little bit earlier. My hope there was to touch on monopolies a little bit, but obviously you can't uh, talk in, in terms of Microsoft. That said, I'm sure there are potential monopoly examples you could give or uh, touch on in the software industry that are not clients. Can you give me, and you don't even have to talk about specific examples, but can you give me the condensed Mark Radcliffe thesis on monopolies within the software industry? Well, so I think that we're beginning to realize that the internet did not do away with monopolies. I mean, I work with a lot of startups. I and my team generally work with 40 startups at any one time. And I'm very much a supporter of the Silicon Valley ecosystem for building new products. But I think what we've discovered over time is that in certain areas, and one of them is social media. I think you can mention Facebook there. They're not a client. It's become a winner-take-all game in a way that we certainly didn't anticipate, right? And so I think that we need, and, you know, frankly, the antitrust laws have been sort of held in abeyance for a long time. You know, part of it was a belief that technology would solve all problems and that, you know, even if you had a temporary monopoly, you couldn't, you know, that would be, a passing monopoly as people shifted to the next technology. I think people are re-examining that. And, you know, is there, uh, you know, are there situations rather where the companies have such an enormous competitive advantage and a competitive advantage which they may be able to move into other arenas that it's appropriate to have them looked at from an antitrust point of view? I mean, you know, coming back to Facebook, you know, I don't. I think it would be very difficult to imagine a competitive social media company now. Of course, Facebook is moving towards a cryptocurrency, Libra, which suggests that it wants to do transactions on its platform. So, you know, take a look to China, you know, and Tencent and Alibaba, where they've been able to extend their platforms. So, uh, I think that people are much more aware that technology is not the silver bullet for uh, market dominance. You know, in other words, it's not the silver bullet that'll kill all, you know, market dominant firms. Instead, it can lead to market dominance. So I think that pragmatically, we need to re-examine, you know, antitrust. And look, you know, this is not something entirely new. You know, AT&T was broken up from an antitrust point of view, you know, when people felt that they had too much power. Now, you know, they've come back together because competition has, 
reemerge. But I, but I do think that we need to reexamine the technology industry from an antitrust point of view because we have discovered that people can be dominant. It's not, as I said, the the technology is not a silver bullet. Shifting the conversation to marketplaces, gig economy platforms. I know there was this regulation recently around gig economy platforms. Are gig economy platforms legal in California today? Well, they're certainly legal. The question is whether or not their the, their drivers are employees. And but you know, then this is you know. Let's step up a minute and talk about the fact this has been a feature of software for a long time and it enables business models and maybe even its use cases basically challenge existing laws just let's give an example copyright as i mentioned earlier in the early 80s many people believed that copyright did not cover software because copyright was for creative works it was for things like paintings or movies or books well, the courts decided, no, it covers you know, software. So what has happened is copyright, which was frankly a rather sleepy area of the law, totally focused on your traditional creative industries, music, books, film, suddenly is invaded by software where it has a much bigger value than all of those industries combined. And is and the principles of copyright law are being sort of bent in a way because of the way software works. Unlike you know, if, software is very different from a movie. You know, you can do a lot of things in a movie. Very few limits on what you can do in software. You're constrained by the hardware you're running on. You're constrained by the other software you use. So there are a lot more constraints in the way you implement software than there is in the way you would uh, you know, create a movie. And that's had a big effect on software. So similarly, this whole issue of, you know, the internet and the, the internet also posed a lot of questions. You know, we talked about earlier, this whole Digital Millennium Copyright Act, was the platform liable for the downloads? And, you know, obviously, you know, there were, um, you know, other cases, particularly involving the music industry, you know, where companies were found liable, but once again, raised issues uh, that were really obscure about what's called contributory infringement. When is somebody who's aiding and assisting an infringer liable for that infringement? And the, you know, in the world before software, that would come up rarely. So there were cases involving, for example, there's a case involving a television station that had a, um, a CEO that was, they were not paying the fees to the movie, to, to the, the movie companies. And so the question is, was the CEO liable for that lack of payment? But those, but you know, the whole, this whole issue of contributory infringement could have come out in a variety of different ways, ex, uh, except for the fact that Digital Millennium Copyright Act was put in place to make very clear about what the new rules of the road would be. So, you know, this whole question of our drivers, employees, or independent consultants is another example, although less directly connected to software, about how software enables businesses that challenge the current, you know, 
legal rules. So the legal rules now are you're an employee or you're a consultant. That's pretty much it. But, you know, the um, people who are drivers um, have characteristics of both. And so, and, you know, look, those, the rules that we, I just mentioned, consultant versus employee, they're not something got handed down by a tablet, you know, by the founders of the U.S. They're state rules to begin with, and they're rules that, you know, evolved over time, you know, as to when somebody's a consultant, when somebody's an employee. And as a consequence, you know, this is yet a third category. So how do you do? And so the question is, how do you deal with that third category? So, yeah, I think this is an example of software enabling new business models that don't fit correlate with the existing legal framework. And, you know, the question then is, okay, now they've passed the law basically saying that for the most part, drivers are employees, but, you know, can you, can the car companies adjust their model to, you know, so that they're no longer employees or do they even apply? I mean, you know, they, the car companies have challenged the law, uh, you know, as to whether or not it applies to them. So, as I said, this is another example of technology in general, but software-enabled technology enabling new business models. And the question is, how do you deal with that under the you know the current legal regimes? Are there any other interesting questions that the gig economy platforms have opened up for you? And not the gig economy, but I think the blockchain has raised an issue, which is important to the entire software industry, which is who is liable for software errors, okay? I'm sure that your listeners know that virtually every software program has errors. If you have a software program where you've got a direct relationship with a person who's distributing it, you know, like you know, Windows or, you know, or Word, um, you know, you have a contractual relationship, it's governed by contract, and it's um, pretty clear all the liabilities disclaimed as a practical matter, but those rules are fairly well set. The rules which are not well set and which, which the blockchain has caused to get opened up is a rule for what's called tort liability, okay? So, you know, tort liability is basically damages to person or property caused by a third party. So the classical tort liability is an automobile company they make an automobile, they thin out the offender, people get into an accident, you know, they hit the gas tank and cars engulfed in flames, okay? And so the question was that negligence the way the car was designed, and that's what the court would do. Well, think about a car now. A car is basically a rolling computer. So now, let's take a, a different analogy. So let's say, car manufacturer 20 years ago makes a brake, but he's trying to save a little money on the brake pad. So he makes the brake pads very thin. The brake pads give out, somebody runs into somebody else, a person dies, who's liable? Well, maybe the car manufacturer because the brake pads are made. But, you know, in the software world, think about how much in your car is software enabled. You know, we've seen this in the context of, you know, Autonomous driving, but put a, put autonomous driving aside. You don't even have to go there, right? You can simply say, what about, you know, just a regular car with a human driver and all of the 
software that goes in that car that potentially, you know, could affect the way the car operates. And remember, this is not just software from the car manufacturer. You've got the car manufacturer, tier one auto manufacturer. You've got the people who put the sensors in. It's, and it's constantly changing. So that's a very difficult situation. And that's something that, that the, you know, society needs to think about and programmers need to think about too. Because, you know, in the blockchain space, there was a professor called Professor Walsh who suggested that developers on public blockchains should be considered fiduciaries of the users of those blockchains. That's a bad idea on a whole lot of levels. Fiduciary, by the way, is the highest duty imposed by law. So, for example, a director of a company has a fiduciary duty to its stockholders. Similarly, an officer of the company has a fiduciary duty to stockholders. So the ideas that are being floating around for this problem, I think, would be immensely damaging to software and developers as a whole. Because theoretically, you know, the, the risk here is that if you make a change to, a, to the Ethereum blockchain and causes somebody to lose property, maybe they lose, you know, maybe their Bitcoin wallet you know, doesn't operate anymore, or their Ether wallet, I guess, and Ethereum blockchain doesn't operate anymore, it's locked up. Are you liable to the person whose wallet got locked up? So that would be, uh, that would be a bad idea, I think. But, that's, but I think that's one of the most difficult issues facing the software industry right now. And this type of tort liability is generally what is called court-made. In other words, the courts see a situation and they try to make a, they try to solve it. And there's a famous case that everybody learns in law school about um, in the 1930s, many um, towboats did not have radar, okay? Radar was new, that's expensive. But the, basically, the, uh, there was a collision out in the harbor and a court said, well, by not having radar, you were negligent, Mr. Towboat owner. And therefore, you're liable for this accident. And so, you know, courts change the scope of liability on a regular basis. And unless the software industry starts thinking about this and proposes a solution, it could find itself in a very difficult position because there's an old statement about bad cases make bad law, which basically says, you know, courts want to do justice. They're, you know, so... The, the question is, you know, how are you going to present the court with an alternative for this very difficult problem rather than having it just impose some type of overreaching liability on all software developers? Are there any other areas that you anticipate a lot of change coming to the legal system in the near future? Well, I think that the legal system is going to see a lot more people working remotely and and uh, courts working remotely simply because it's so efficient. Also, law firms are like everybody else in this society are going to be much more dependent on software. And you know, the problem with that, and it's true of sort of all service organizations, from everything from accountants to management consultants, which is if you, let's say a certain task takes you 10 hours. Okay, you go out and buy software, for example, we have a program called Kira, which is an, 
an artificial intelligence program which essentially reads contracts in large M&A deals and tells you, yeah, you've got four provisions you're looking at. Maybe you're looking at the warranty. Maybe you're looking at the limitation of liability. You're looking at the choice of law. And you're looking at the assignment provisions. And it basically puts all that together, okay, uh, for you on a chart. In the past, you would have had a bunch of junior lawyers go out and read all the contracts. So you've got, you know, you're paying for Kira. And instead of taking you 10 hours, now it takes you five hours. So you've got a cost, which reduces your profitability, and you've got a, and you're, you, you know, you have fewer hours for that task. So that is going to lead in direction, I think, away from billable hours. For those that you are familiar with the law, you know that most law firms operate on what's called billable hours, um, where a task, uh, you know, you may get an estimate, but you really don't know how much it's going to cost you until the end of the task, which reflects, frankly, some of the uncertainty about uh, legal matters. But I think that that law firms in the 50s didn't use billable hours. And so we may receive, you know, have a return to a world of non-billable hours, except for certain things like litigation or stuff like that, that's pretty difficult to predict. So I think that, um, and I think lawyers are going to become much greater consumers of, you know, of software and services, which is also going to enable smaller law firms compete. I mean, it used to be that the large law firms had a very high competitive advantage because they had a law library. And that law library, you know, every the everybody in the smaller firms that didn't have access to those books had to go to the county law library. Well, now all the, you know, we don't really have much of a library anymore. It's all online. And I can't remember the last time I looked at a physical book. But the point is that means that smaller organizations can get access to resources that they couldn't they couldn't in the past. So I think you'll you'll see a proliferation of smaller law firms because they'll have much uh, higher capabilities. So all right. Well that's very promising for the entrepreneurial lawyers out there. Thanks for coming on the show, Mark. It's been great talking to you. Great talking to you too. 